The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. We've taken up this fall the study of the Buddha's 16 instructions for mindfulness of breathing. I'm sure you could miss that with the you know, systematic way the instructions have been given the last few weeks, including tonight. We're getting right to the middle of the instructions. These 16 instructions are divided in four groups. They're called tetrads, each group of four. And the first set of four really have to do with the body and making peace with the body so that the mind, after working on these first four instructions, the mind comes to a place of not having a problem with the body. So does that mean the body's perfect? No. The body, when you get to that fourth instruction, develop the master, let's say, that fourth instruction, the body's still the body. But what's changed is now the mind is relating to the body without having any problem. So that mind then is undisturbed, right? It's intimate with the body. And the calmness that we cultivate with that fourth instruction is because the mind doesn't have a problem with the body. So the mind isn't projecting its anxiety, its controlling, its judgment, its whatever on the body. So the body settles down. Right? We still may have knee pain. We'll still be a certain age, the body, you know, certain aches and pains from past injuries. But there will be a real sense of integration and peace between the body and the mind. It will be apparent if you cultivate these first four steps. And uh, a lot of times people think of mindfulness of breathing only in terms of these four steps. But there are 12 other steps, which really have more to do with the mind. But the breath is still there, but now on the periphery as we go forward, right? In fact, even with the third instruction where we're bringing awareness of the whole body to the forefront of attention, that's really the meditation object when we're on step four, breathing in, experiencing the whole body, right? But we're still feeling the breath coming in, but it isn't the predominant or the central object of awareness. We know we're breathing in, but we're intending to feel the whole body, to say yes to the whole body. Now remember, even though over these next several weeks we're learning these 16 steps, that doesn't mean that's how you normally practice at home. right? So we're learning the map so we can let it go. And then when you just practice, you'll kind of know where you are because you've learned the map, but you're not forcing yourself to work through the map linearly every time you sit. You might do it every month. Let's say once you really get a sense of the map, you might specifically go through. So you just remember how it plays out. But different places, at different times, will be different places in the map. Sometimes the mind will be really gross, really wild, really upset, and we won't even get to the first step. We'll just be that preliminary step of the Buddha says, establish mindfulness to the fore, like get interested in the present moment. Well, there's sometimes our minds are so wild, so upset about something, obsessing about something, 
but doesn't even occur to the mind for more than a few instances to be in the present moment. Because it feels like, I've got to obsess, I've got to think this through, I've got to judge this, I have to, and on and on. One thought, triggering the next thought, triggering the next thought. And then we might have a brief moment where we realize, oh, I'm totally obsessed. Oh, it's like this. And then we just jump right back in, right? So then we're not really doing the 16 steps. We're doing the preliminary work of what in Buddhism we'd call abandoning the hindrances. And there's lots of teachings about how we abandon the hindrances. So again, mindfulness of breathing is a relatively advanced practice because it presupposes we've had the skill or have some momentum in our practice so the mind isn't plagued by doubt or plagued by sleepiness or plagued by restlessness or wanting something or aversive to something, right? It's able to connect and sustain attention with an ordinary experience. And that is a significant step. Just that first instruction, when breathing in, one under, when breathing in long, one understands I'm breathing in a long breath. Just that simple, clear acknowledgement, oh yeah, I'm breathing in a long breath. Breathing out a long breath. And then as breath settles down because there's more continuity, well then the breath is going to become more refined and settle. Oh yeah, breathing in a short breath. Breathing out a short breath. So before I go on to the next set of four instructions, because next week we'll go to the third set of four instructions, let's just see if there are any questions about the first set of four instructions. And again, it's okay if you don't like the sort of how linear, how systematic the instructions are. Just sort of bear with it because it all makes sense, right? I mean, each instruction, it's just that anything formulaic seems a little unnatural. And it is. But it's nice to have a map. So when you're just practicing, just settle, maybe connect with the breath for a while. But always keep the breath in mind because in this style of practice, one of the advantages of using the breath all the way through to awakening, which this, these 16 steps do, they go from just being an ordinary Joe who's trying to bring present moment awareness to some physical experience like breathing in, all the way to awakening. Having the breath in the vicinity, the, the simple physicality of breathing in and out, it ends up being this really important barometer or even like an alarm because you know when you're lost in thought because you're not aware of breathing in or breathing out. So even as you're studying the more subtle aspects of the mind with the later steps, you're still aware of breathing in and breathing out. So there's this real integration of subtle and gross. The breath, you know, the ordinary physicality, breathing in and out, it's always going to be a relatively gross aspect of the present moment that feeling of the abdomen rising and falling or the feeling of the air touching the nostrils or the expansion and contraction of the ribcage, however you might be feeling those sensations. But it, it just serves a really uh, important function of when we notice that the mind doesn't know if it's an in or out breath, I'm not in the present moment. Right? And that in a kind of like is a... Wake up, honey. 
you know, the whole point. What we don't want to do is imagine we're present when we're not present. And so that's why in this style we use this rhythm of breathing in and breathing out. Because it's changing, it requires a kind of ongoing vigilance with the attention. I mean, I don't know if people, you know, like uh, some people count to 10. You know, they count breaths in and out. And that's not, a, uh, it's not enough to watch, but they're count. Because so sometimes, you know, you go to 10 and then you come, you start over with one. You get to 10, you come. And they'll notice they're at 27 or 86. <laughs> you know, and they realize, oh, I totally spaced out. Like I was totally not in the present moment. Because if I were, I would have noticed 11 right? Oh yeah, I'm not going to 11. I'm starting over at 1. So there are all kinds of tricks just to see in a practical way whether the mind is tracking the present moment or whether it's lost in thought in some way or another. Okay. So any questions about the first set of four that come to mind? Yeah, and wait for the mic so we can all hear each other. And we are recording tonight. Would you mind? Right behind you. So, Mark, would you say that the gross element of the breath is without mindfulness? No, it's just that because the mind is still in a grosser state, you know, the body is always going to reflect the mind. And and also the body affects the mind, just like the mind affects the body. And so we're just in our ordinary state of consciousness when we begin. So the breath is just going to be reflecting the ordinary state of the body and mind, which is just more rough and rough and long, generally speaking. Now, it's going to be different for each person how your breath expresses itself when you're just at an ordinary state. But what you really want to get to know is what does the breath, how does the breath move when everything is settling? And for most people, it just gets refined. And in that refinement, I mean, short is a funny word, but it just is more refined. That's a little bit better word, right? So we're just sort of understanding. Now, you might have a very refined in and out breath. The body and mind might be really settling in a nice way. But then sometimes, not, not I mean, not rare, all the time really, disturbances can still arise. And then you'll notice the breath goes back to being more ordinary, more gross, longer. And then you'll settle it down. Then after a while, it will really settle. And even settle to a degree that you don't recognize. I've never seen the breath this subtle. Almost as if it's not there. And that's a real important barometer to notice how your breath is sometimes longer, grosser, more ordinary. And how sometimes the breath, reflecting the subtleness of the mind, gets very refined. And as I've mentioned in the earlier weeks of the instructions, it really is a beautiful cause for the quality of attention to develop. Because if we're paying attention to something more refined, then the attention has to become more and more refined. So that's one of the reasons the breath turns out to be a really useful anchor. You don't have to use the breath. And some of you, maybe who had a lot of asthma, or have a lot of asthma in your you know, health, or for whatever reason have some trauma related to the breath, 
the breath won't necessarily be a good meditation anchor. But you can sort of use most of these instructions or modify them even if you go right to whole body awareness, which some people might, or use hearing as a primary anchor for, for the settling of the mind. So there are any number of ways to do it. But the mindfulness of breathing is one of the ones the Buddha highly praised. Yeah, thanks. Other questions about this first set? Yeah, wait for the microphone now. Hi, I'm uh, Leslie. I've been with you through this whole process and since the beginning, and I've really, really struggled with the breathing. Um, I've predominantly struggled with, and and I think it might come down to to just finding a balance or finding like that middle place, because I struggle with not focusing on the breath and letting in my mind just goes to if I focus on the breath, I get too relaxed and I, and I end up almost basically just falling asleep. Yeah. And so I, I, do you have any suggestions of how to focus on the breath and be able to maintain that, that interest and, and not yeah. get too relaxed and sleepy? Great question. I already forgot your name. Could you say it again? Leslie. Leslie. Thanks, Leslie. Yeah, it's a great question because, and I, I mentioned it briefly in the instructions, you know, we don't have a lot of practice paying attention to things that are pretty neutral. And breathing in and breathing out as a natural phenomena, it's not very exciting. It's not dramatic. It doesn't have a lot to do with self. It, right? There's not a lot of ego involvement in breathing in and breathing out. And so the very deep tendency of the mind is to want to dismiss it. So... When we bring awareness to neutral, ordinary objects, the mind will either go into a trance or go to sleep. So what part of the training is how, learning how, because right, we don't know yet how, learning how to be interested in something that's ordinary and neutral. Like we could, like for that training, let's say you walk four blocks from you know, whatever, one place to another in your day, you could get really interested in the visual experience of seeing the concrete of the sidewalk, right? That's pretty neutral. Or we could, like, train the mind to be interested in feeling the shirt against the skin of the body. When's the last time you were able to sustain awareness with that simple contact? But there's a lot of power... See, one of the reasons why the Buddha chooses a relatively neutral experience like in and out breathing is because when we're aware of something neutral, that the neutrality may be triggering sleepiness and trance-like states, but it at least isn't triggering greed and aversion because it's neutral. If it was pleasant, it would trigger greed. If it was unpleasant, it would trigger aversion. But because it's neutral, it doesn't trigger those, So, which is good because they distort the mind quite a bit when there's a lot of greed or a lot of aversion. So the mind's in a balanced place. It just needs to learn how to stay alert, just what you were saying, right? And we practice. So with the, you know, we're really training the mind to be interested in something simple. 
And so just encourage the mind. And the other thing, just to inspire ourselves, like I, we did a little bit right at the beginning, you know, setting the motivation so we feel inspired. We're not just doing the practice because we think we should. Um, most of our life, most of our sense experience is neutral. And if, we're, if we have a deep habit to be unaware, we miss so much of life. And so there's, there's, and then we feel like life isn't full, feels a little incomplete, because a lot of it is relatively neutral. But when we learn how to be interested in neutrality, it's just like things start to come alive that we would normally be hungry for something interested, like on our way to a negative experience that we have to manage or a pleasant experience that we're going to consume, right? But that, that sort of, uh, yeah, we just start cutting ourselves off from more and more of our life because it's neutral. It's like the obvious example is you fall in love. It's not neutral at all. But after a while with that person, it gets neutral. So we start stop showing up, right, because it's not exciting. Or we try to make it exciting, but that starts to get a little stressful and neurotic, like how to spice up my relationship, right? As opposed to really learning how to show up fully with neutrality. And then you might have a really healthy relationship for a long time. Yeah, thanks for bringing up that good question. Anything else related? Yeah, please, wait for the mic, though. Hi, my name is Michelle. And it's really interesting. I've been thinking this whole evening and through the talk while we were meditating, um, your, I mean, your, your, your comments, your, your, I'm um, talking us through that is the whole idea of breathing being simple and neutral, or, or, or becoming um, shorter and more refined. Refined. It's interesting for me because, well, I'm a biology person, biologist, and. I think breathing is magical, right? And the way even our sinuses work, I have a sinus issue on this side that I've had for lots of years. So as I pay attention to my breathing, I can really feel, because I can picture my sinuses and the air going Mm -hmm. through and where it's blocked. I feel that, and as I sort of like let go of the frustration that this is or, or pay attention to this being a problem where normally I'm not, or often I'm not thinking about it, but then feeling that I can still breathe is just kind of, it's all kind of magical. So for me to think of it as being a neutral thing, it's not at all, right? The breathing and, and just being a biology kind of person, just the things we think of as every day and take for granted truly are magical and mysterious and if yeah. you spend the time being present with those things it just the the magic is wonderful and joyful so yeah yeah that's true and sometimes uh we have to there's an edge it's a little bit like uh, somebody who's a highly trained musician using sound as their anchor or you know like Laura's a, a wonderful landscaper, done some beautiful work in our garden and is helping out with our retreat property. 
And, you know, somebody could sit in front of a lance, you know, a natural setting and meditate with their eyes open. But for somebody with a training, it's like it would trigger a lot of creativity, right? And it's the same thing with a biologist. When you're using some physical process, you can't help, but all that content related from your training gets activated, right? So you might want to either take something like less close to the physiology, so something a little bit more gross, like just feeling the experience of motion, the movement of the abdominal wall, something less interesting, basically, right? Or just the touching. And don't. And when the mind wants to know more, yeah, that's true, but see if I can get interested in the touching. And as exciting as it can get, is it's a little cooler on the way in and a little warmer on the way out. That's, that's the height of the excitement. You know, or you, you can actually sometimes feel like if the hair and the nostrils are a little out of place, you know, or whatever. <laughs> a little bit more friction if there's congestion, a little bit less. But anyway, or not, don't use the breath at all if it's triggering a lot of the information that you have about the breath and about your own particular physiology or um, symptoms or tendencies with your sinuses. Just so that because we really do want, especially with the initial steps, the first four especially, it's really kind of a settling of conceptual activity. And although on that level, the body and the bodily processes are really amazing and magical, like you say, just the wonder of nature, but that's only true from the point of view of a me who's discovering there is a body. So it's really in this dualistic conceptual mode of somebody having a body that's evolved through evolution and it's amazingly sophisticated and nuanced and magical, right? But we're actually dropping that whole story for a while when we do the training. And we're really looking at the experience of the body initially. And then the next three are really about experiencing the mind in different ways. The second set of four, which we're going to now, is really about experiencing the activity of mind. So the first four instructions, the activity of the body. But remember, it's, we think of the first four like, oh yeah, I'm aware of the body. But we're aware of the mind knowing the body. Can you be aware of the body without the mind that knows the body? No. So we're really, in a sense, reflectively watching the mind know the body. Because that's how the body's known, through the mind. There is no body without a mind that knows it, right? So we're observing the mind knowing the body Right? in a particular way that the mind is no longer disturbing the body. And there's some calm in that. Then we're going to observe the grosser part of the mind, which is mental activity. And that means like perceptions, recognizing what's happening, having a feeling about what you recognize what's happening. That's just a natural, inevitable response. If I recognize that my mind's settling down, 
then I'm going to have a good feeling. Oh, I'm settling down, right? Or if I'm, you know, recognizing that my knee hurts, I have that perception, oh, my knee hurts, and then I might react with unpleasantness. So that's all mental activity. There may be sensations there, but I'm talking about what the mind is doing with the sensations or with the sound or with a memory or with whatever, right? That's all the mental activity. And so, but before we really look closely at mental activity, we pluck out of our, you know, diverse experience of the present moment, we pluck out joy. Now, initially, joy may not be that predominant, but we do the same kind of training where we're, like, initially we were learning to pay attention to something neutral. Now we're looking, training the mind to pay attention to something pleasant, like that light, buoyant quality in the mind, even if it's not the strongest or most predominant thing, but we're finding it with confidence, even if it's faint, and we're keeping attention on it as we breathe in, as we breathe out, we're keeping joy in mind. Yeah. This is really, this is Amanda. Um, This is really helpful for me, uh, especially when we think about that's that first one that we pluck out. Because I find that when I do settle, I then attach to that settled feeling. And when mental activity starts, it's very, I'm very aversive. I'm like, no, I'm settled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't ruin this for me. <laughs> um, and so just knowing that the next step to sort of avoid that is to find the joy. Yeah. That to me makes a lot of sense. Because it's more refined than the calm. Right, so we're moving to refinement all the way through. Even when we go to breathing in, experiencing mental activity, really what we're experiencing is the dispassion, the dispassionate relationship to mental activity. So in a way, we say mental activity, but actually what's being noticed is the mind not having a problem with mental activity. And as you breathe in, the mind not having a problem with mental activity. Yeah, and that's the third step in the second set of four, so whatever that would be, seven. Yeah. So experiencing joy, experiencing joy, experiencing the more relaxed joy, which it's just a maturing of that inner happiness. Initially, inner happiness is like a bright, buoyant, light, flowy, or energetic, shiny, radiant quality of the heart and mind. And the body feels it too, like like joyful interest. Whoa, whoa, right? Like ah, that kind. Now again, it won't be like a bright light bulb initially, but we just find it however we find it. And like you can even bring a little reflection in to prompt it like, this is so cool to be doing the practice, you know, or just, you know, that little bit of gratitude about having the time to cultivate the heart like we're doing, or whatever brings you a little, uh, triggers a little lightness, a little buoyant joy in the heart and mind. Then then the hard part is like, keep it in mind. Because although it's hard initially to train to be with a neutral experience, it's actually harder in some ways It's not hard to be interested in joy, but it's hard to be interested in joy without any attachment. 
like to have a really like intimate, but no clinging, no controlling, no holding on. Because actually it, it spoils it. So the way to really receive the impression of joy is to not have attachment or an agenda, except to experience it, and then to experience it, and then to experience it, and to be sustaining this attention to joy so that it remains unwavering, unbroken. And then it starts to blossom and mature and settle into more resonant inner happiness we call sukha, is the Pali word, ease, contentedness. And that has a kind of a more heart-releasing flavor to it, as opposed to the bright, light bulb-ish quality of joy. It has more of a, ah, like a, something is relaxing, defenses are relaxing, not needing. Like That's what contentment means, right? We don't need the moment to be different than it is. So we're actually experiencing that quality of mind that doesn't need conditions to be different than they are because it's content with the conditions. It's, it's okay with the conditions. It's at ease with the conditions of the present moment as I breathe in, as I breathe out. And when that feels like it's matured enough, and again, we'll just naturally move through these steps. It's kind of a natural process, but it's good to play with the map so that you, it's sort of the impression has been made. But then there's naturally, because I'm okay with things being the way they are, I'm okay with the thoughts. I don't have a problem with mental activity, whatever the mind's doing. So I can gaze upon the thinking processes, whatever they might be, with this passion. Oh yeah, that's what the mind does. That's what the thinking mind does. It thinks, it plans, it has intention, it perceives or recognizes things, feels things, reacts to feeling, likes this, doesn't like that, intends this. But now the mind or wisdom in the mind is able to recognize that thought without neurotically feeling I have to get rid of thoughts. That's a big step. There's a, that really is a different kind of state of mind when we, we're, not, we're neither pushed around by thoughts or attached to them or you know, like averse to the thoughts, think we've got to get rid of them or just identifying with thoughts. They're just like somebody left a radio on. Just chatter, but it's okay. Like They can almost be like chimes. <laughs> yeah, and wait for... The, that's the goal, and the third... The third instruction of the second. Okay. Yeah, because we're right now uh, five, six, seven, step seven, right? So experiencing joy experiencing ease, experiencing thoughts or mental activity with dispassion. And that dispassionate awareness of mental activity is what uh, quiets the grosser aspect of the mind. So now thinking starts to get more quiet. right? Because the mind is relating to mental activity with dispassion, it's not feeding. So you'll notice the way we feed mental activity 
is we get attached to it, we take it personally, and it's that charge of owning, taking it personally, feeling invested that then causes one thought to lead to another. But when we have a more spacious, dispassionate attitude about mental activity, it's not getting fed. So it just naturally settles, 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 like a snow globe, you know, just sort of every all the particles settling. And then at some point, there's still mental activity, but at some point with the quieting, then the space, so the more subtle aspect of the mind, not the activity of the mind, but the space of the mind, for lack of a better word, becomes apparent. The space in which the activity happens. Now, words aren't very good at this level, but it's not, even now, in a, with a kind of more ordinary state of consciousness, especially people who've been practicing for a while, you'll be able, even in the middle of an argument with a friend or a partner, you'll be able to sense the space of the present moment. Not what's happening here, but the space. And you can try it right now. Right? There's hearing and maybe some reverberation, some thinking about what I'm saying. But especially in those pauses where there's not a talking, and we often attribute something to that space of the mind, like the sound of silence, right? That's often what we will associate with that space of mind. Or we use words like stillness. But it's really noticing that empty space in which all activity of the present moment plays itself out or does its dance. Yeah, you want to pass it back? Yeah, it's good to ask questions, as we, especially if they're related to the steps we're talking on. I'm Michelle. Can you hear me? I, um, this is exactly where my practice is. And some days my mind is super active and I just sit there and I try to say, wow, that's what a brain does. Um, and some days it's easier for me to see it settle, but all the instruction that you're giving hits me right now in my practice as very, um, it's cognitive based in that I can notice it and I'm supposed to notice how averse or attached I am to it, and I'm supposed to, or I'm not, I don't mean like supposed to, like you're telling me, but this is my interpretation of what you're saying, Um, and that as I get more skilled in that practice, uh, I'll, I know the goal isn't to progress, but I mean like my, I will be less distressed by my mind. And um, so I'm curious about that. And the technique that I have been recently trying is like imagining taking my brain out and kind of setting it on the floor and saying to my brain, this is a time for you to receive. So the, the cable that's giving me information about me, we're going to turn that down. And let's make a big pipe that's from my body to you. And I'm trying to let my body inform my brain. Um, like almost like my body is the wise thing, even if it hurts. And that has been interesting lately. So I'm just curious about that, both of yeah. those things. I would call that more the creative response to hindrances. So when the mind is attached to thought and getting pushed around and getting entangled and 
which is like where our mind is 99% of the time, for sure during the day. And uh, a lot of the time we're lost in thought, caught up to some degree at least in thought, with moments like that, what we'd call, just to be blunt, diluted activity, punctuated with moments of awareness, wisdom awareness, and then lost in thought again or diluted again, and moments of wisdom awareness, right? And so the initial work is like, how to get in the vicinity where I can train my mind. And when our mind is getting pushed and pulled by greed and aversion, distraction, denial, then it's really not capable of learning anything. It's just going to basically keep doing what it's done before and get the same results it's gotten before. And so then we need a, a whole array of skillful means to abandon those deeper habits of mind, kind of maybe what you were talking about. But this, once we kind of get in these 16 steps, I encourage you, when you're confused, to be able to recall the instruction as translated. So all you're doing, so for the first two, you're just understanding whether you're breathing in and out, whether it's relatively gross breath or relatively refined breath. That's all. So that's all the Buddha is asking. Not, you're not controlling your breath at all. You're, the word is understand. Just understand, is this a longer breath or a shorter breath? A rougher breath or a more refined breath? So you just need to be tracking the physicality of the breathing process enough to understand, oh yeah, this is a longer breath or this is a shorter breath. And then the next one, the, the Buddha says, training yourself to experience the whole body. So experiencing the whole body. That's all we're being asked to do. Just feel the whole body. It's how about fixing or releasing knots. That would be more what you would do before you start the 16 steps where the unpleasant physical sensations are keeping the mind from settling. You might breathe into different places in the body to help the whole body or you might do some pranayama practice or do some mindful movement, some stretching, whatever that really help the system settle down so that you can do the 16 steps. But when you're doing the whole body, whatever the body is, is okay. You're just saying yes to it. And you're saying yes to it. And then you're noticing that that acceptance, that awareness of the whole body is healing and it has the vibe of calm. So you're noticing the calm as the mind is okay with the body being the way the body is. And then that settling, that healing of the body-mind makes it more apparent, makes it easier for awareness to notice joy. So the instruction is experience joy, experience joy, experience ease, experience ease. And then where you were just talking, it's really experiencing mental activity. So at this point, we're neither for it nor against it. We're definitely not against mental activity, right? That's really important because um, the whole way through, there is, like any uh, beginning meditator, we basically have a problem with mental activity because as a beginner, we just want some calm, right? And what is the main obstacle for calm? The mind that won't stop, won't shut up, just keeps going, Right, I mean, this is what people find when they go on residential retreat practice. 
they realize the waterfall, or I call it the spewing of the mind. It's just like endless. And the thing is, as we settle, because we're on retreat, it just gets, it looks bigger because the mind's more settled. So the ceaseless mental activity can really like break our heart and freak us out. Like, is it always like that? Yeah, it is. But we don't notice it until we start to pay attention, turn the attention inward, and we realize like, oh my God. Right. So then we have to make sure by the time we get to that seventh step, we don't have an aversive relationship to mental activity. We have that dispassionate, neutral, spacious relationship to mental activity. If we do have an aversive relationship to mental activity, we might want to step back to an earlier instruction that we can really be with as it's actually we're being invited to do it. So go to joy if, if that's available. If not, go all the way back to the first or two first two instructions. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Michelle. Yeah, over here. We have time for one more at least and maybe two more. This, this should be quick. Um, my name is Sally. And I w- you mentioned this just a little while ago, um, the word trance. And I just latched on to that. And I'm, I wonder if you could explain that a little bit more because I'm kind of curious about what that really is. Yeah, and it, and it kind of goes to um, Leslie's comment about like when we're training our mind and intending to be with something neutral, what if we stop being interested, so we're sort of doing it on autopilot, you could do this with a mantra, you can do this with a visualization, you can do this with breathing practice. Basically, any meditative training that you do on autopilot will send your mind to a tr- either to sleepiness or to a trance-like state, right? Where you kind of get in this sort of little la-la bubble, fuzzy, relatively pleasant bubble, right? The, the danger is it becomes a habit of the mind and over time a very deep habit. So whenever you sit down, the mind will just fall into that hole. And over time then, you'll be sitting for, long, you know, for years even, but you won't ever learn anything. So you might get a decent nap or sort of downtime, which is not bad, of course, but your, your mind's getting trained to disconnect, which isn't what we want because ultimate useful learning comes from being really present, alert. And uh, like we can't really study the present moment and be manipulating. So it's that alertness without reactivity. That's what really supports learning or insight. And that's really what we're developing. So that's why we use a neutral. It's going to trigger a lot of that relaxation into trance or sleepiness. So before we really fall asleep, we've got to be finding our way how to encourage the mind to be interested in something neutral. Yeah, thanks, Sally. Thank you. Time for one more. Yeah, Kermit, and then we'll end. Thank you. I've been reading um, um, Brad Warner and all about Dogen and you know Japanese sound. And the instruction is 
to think the thought of no thought. And, you know, I can kind of get that to work, but I'm wondering, is that kind of antithetical to what you're saying, or is that, am I just being aware of a different thought? Yeah, so Dogen is the person who uh, brought Zen practice, Chan, it was called in China, from China to Japan way back, I think, in the 13th century. Yeah, and that's a famous passage, I think, the thought of no thought, or it gets translated in different ways. It's just the different skillful means, right? So there are all kinds of ways. That's a little further along. I mean, it's kind of like the eighth and ninth and tenth step where we're uh, learning to recognize the space of the mind. What is the mind when it's not being distorted by mental activity? What's the mind independent of mental activity? the particular mental activity, right? So there's all kinds of, in Zen and other traditions, there's all kinds of techniques to stop the mind, to stop the activity. And then in that flash, there can be a recognition of the primordial mind or the space of the mind, the silence of the mind. There's different words, you know, but we need to experience it. It's not about the ideas or the words. It's about experiencing the mind, not the activity of the mind. And that's not how we practice here, but Zen practice is great. I've done Zen practice. There are a lot of skillful means in that lineage. So we need to leave it here, maybe pass the mic to Julan. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Grateful for these teachings, all the folks before us, so many generations from the time of the Buddha, 2,600 years ago, to us here at this corner in Minneapolis. And like it or not, it's our turn now, hearing these teachings, reflecting on them, integrating them, finding what's of value here and really developing the causes for wisdom and compassion in our lives. So we become more skillful, more useful, can pass this wisdom along to the next generation, each of us in our own ways. May this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.